Hi, everybody. Welcome back for our second lecture on Central Asia. And it's really interesting that we start off looking at this map of the Mongol Empire. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you realize that the Mongol Empire was the largest land-based empire that ever existed in the world. And you can see the extent of the Mongol Empire. Now, I don't know if you know any of the names from the Mongol Empire. We have people like Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan and things like that. Um, this empire was really enabled through the domestication of the horse. Uh, and it was uh, through being able to domesticate the horse and using the horse in warfare that enabled this Mongol Empire to expand uh, to the extent it did. And then, of course, after the uh, Europeans and others uh, developed uh, uh, weapons that they could uh, fight back uh, against, the, uh, against the Mongols, uh, they were you know, pr pretty easily pushed back. Um, but the Mongol Empire really emanated from... Um, uh, if I remember correctly, from um, an association of the Mongol tribes and Turkic tribes here in this part of Asia. So we have our Mongol tribes up in here, and then our Turkish tribes, and the, and the two unified together and were able to create this huge empire. And one of the things that we will find out when we uh, look at the uh, linguistics geography is that uh, we'll find some Turkish languages, some of the Altaic languages, uh, that are related to Turkish uh, spoken uh, in much of this region. So anyway, let's look at some of the cultural coherence and diversity. And you can, and the reason we start off with this map is because it helps us to understand how this region became uh, somewhat culturally coherent. And then, as we'll see, um, also has a lot of diversity in it as well. So a little bit of a historical in, uh, overview. Some people actually claim that this region in Central Asia was actually the places where the Indo-European language emanates from. Um, people claim that there was a proto-Indo-European language uh, that was spoken in this region and then eventually developed into the Indo-European family, which if you remember correctly, it's a, uh, uh, the language family that uh, has the most speakers in the world. And so that was uh, supposedly had its uh, beginnings in the steppe land areas and the farming villages uh, centered in this area. Uh, and farming villages uh, have been found from about 8,000 BC in this region, so 10,000 years ago. So very much part of that early uh, agricultural revolution that we talk about. Uh, we talked about the agricultural revolution and its significance in, in North Africa and Southwest Asia. And we had a similar situation uh, about the same time period in this region, particularly in the, in the uh, Central Asian part of uh, this region, or the former Soviet republics of this region, I should say. So, as I mentioned, domestication of the horse about 4000 BC really enabled this empire to expand over time. Uh, Post-pastoral nomadism dominated from the earliest time. Uh, the mobility offered from uh, the mobility of the horse offered protection from enemies. And, but then guns changed the equation, especially when the Chinese developed uh, gunpowder and so forth. And then that uh, technology uh, uh, was distributed to Europe where uh, it was used uh, for guns. Early languages here obviously are in the, in, here in the Indo-European family. Uh, some are related to Persian. This region is considered, as I said, the, Indo the birthplace of the Indo-European peoples. Altaic languages replaced Indo-European languages about 2,000 years ago. Three, uh, and so that's when we start to see uh, the unification 
of the Mongols and the Turkish peoples. Uh, three branches of the uh, Altaic languages are the Tungusic, Mongolian, and Turkish. Turks spread from what is now Mongolia in, uh, uh, into other areas of this region. Uh, in 1100s, uh, let's see, um, uh, the Mongols replaced the Turks. In 1100, the Mongols united all pastorals to Central Asia, as I, I said before. The, so the Mongols were really responsible for, reunite, for uniting this uh, region. By the late 1200s, the Mongol Empire was the largest in the world, uh, the, the largest the world had ever seen. Tibet had somewhat of a different experience. Tibet, a strong unifying kingdom by 700 AD. Tibetan independence has been elusive, though, uh, most recently, obviously, occupied by the Chinese. So let's take a look at the modern uh, linguistic diversity, because it is pretty diverse, as you can see from this map. Uh, the Tibetan, or the Sino-Tibetan family, uh, relationship, uh, the relationship between Chinese and Tibetan is unclear. Uh, about 1.5 to 2.5 million people in, in Tibet speak Tibetan. The other 1 million people speak Chinese, and that's largely due to the migration into the area. Um, some Tibetan speakers are found in China also. Mongolian has about 5 million speakers of Mongolian. 90% of the province of Mongolia speaks Mongolian. The Turkish languages are the most common, is the most common language group in the region from Azerbaijan in the west to China's Xinjiang province. So from Azerbaijan in the west, the whole way into this region here, as you can see. Down here, I'm sorry. I think I was pointing to the wrong place there. Okay, so, um, you, uh, so um, we have Uyghur, uh, the language of Xinjiang. Okay, and let's see if we can find Uyghur on here. This kind of purplish color would be, I think this is what they're using here. Then we, of course, we have Mongolian down here, a little bit of Mongolian here, and Mongolian up in here as well. Uh, immigration, as I mentioned, immigration, the Han Chinese called Uyghurs to be a minority in their own land because now we have more uh, Han Chinese uh, and Mandarin Chinese speakers than we have Uyghurs. The percentage of people speaking uh, indigenous languages, 82% of the citizens of Azerbaijan speak Azeri, 70% of the Uzbeks uh, people speak Uzbek, 73% of Turkmenistan's people speak Turkmen, 52% of the Kyrgyzstan's people speak Kyrgyz, and 42% of the Kazakhstan's people speak Kazakh. Um, now, I, I, wanna, I also want to point out something here as well. Central Asia is often considered the meeting place between the Persian and Turkish languages. And so we have Persian that's largely spoken in um, Iran. If you remember when we talked about Iran, they uh, speak Persian there, and particularly Farsi. And so this is the area that's uh, kind of the meeting ground between those two languages. In the uh, former Soviet zone, we also have... Um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, linguistic diversity and complexity. Tajikistan has complex mixture of languages, and so there's a variety of different languages that are spoken in Tajikistan. Uh, Azerbaijan also has complex language, uh, uh, language mix. And if you want to talk about diversity, uh, ethno and linguistic diversity, there's probably no place as diverse as uh, Afghanistan. 
Afghanistan, uh, I don't know, don't know how many of you know this, but it was never colonized, has never been colonized. It, has, it was never colonized by the, uh, the Russians or the Soviet Union or by the British or any other European power. Uh, its boundaries are indigenous, that is, they created their own boundaries. Uh, there's two major language groups. The two major language groups are Pashto, where about somewhere about 40 to 60 percent of the people speak that language, and Dari, which is related to Persian. The ethnic diversity, as you can tell from this map, is even more complex. So let's take a look at this map because I, I think it helps us to understand some of the issues that um, are faced in Afghanistan in trying to unite this country, or I guess more particular, and uh, having outside forces come in to this region and try to uh, unite it under their uh, uh, power, uh, try to impose their culture, impose their way of life and so forth. The Russians couldn't do it. The Europeans couldn't do it. And I hate to be pessimistic because I know most of you are probably Americans that are listening to this, but the Americans aren't going to do it either. Uh, I can guarantee you, it's just not going to happen. Uh, so look at, let's look at the uh, uh, the uh, different uh, groups of people. So uh, we have the Tajik people, mostly in the northern part of the country. We have the Hazara people, kind of in the central part. And the Hazara are kind of interesting. They are Muslim. Uh, most of the people in this region are Muslim, as we'll see when we look at the at, at the religion of the region, but certainly in Afghanistan, most of, uh, just about everybody is Muslim. Uh, most people are uh, Sunni Muslim in Afghanistan, but the Hazara are actually different because they uh, practice Shia Islam. Okay. Then we have the uh, IMAC people, as you can see from these lines here. Okay. Um, we also have some Tajik people over here in the eastern part of the, uh, the region. Um, so very, very, and then we have our Pashtun people, they're kind of in the southern part. Um, people who speak Pashtun or Pashto, if you prefer. And then we have some other groups of people. And down in the very southern part, we have the Baluchi people, because down in here is Pakistan. And so we have some spillover of the Baluchi people from uh, Pakistan into the southern part of uh, Afghanistan. So those are just the Indo-European the different Indo-European languages that are spoken in the region. Now let's take a look at some of the other languages. We have Uzbek, again in the northern part. We have Turkmen, because here, right here we have Tur Turkmenistan. Okay, we have uh, Uzbek, uh, Uzbekistan just north there, um, where, the, where we find the, um, uh, right, uh, contiguous to where we find uh, Uzbek spoken in Afghanistan. And then we have the Kyrgyz uh, as well over in this area. Okay, over in this area. And then in the very southern part, we have a Dravidian language that's spoken, uh, uh, Brahwa, uh, in the very southern and southeastern part of the country. And this is actually very interesting because Dravidian languages, as we'll see, are spoken in India. And actually, most of the Dravidian languages are spoken in the very southern part of India. And when we get to that part of the region, we'll see that there's a very distinct line in India between the Indo-European languages, which are spoken in the northern part of India, and the Dravidian languages are spoken in the, in the southern part of India. So this is actually pretty interesting that we have Dravidian peoples uh, this, this far north in Afghanistan. So let's take a look at um, 
at the linguistic, or I'm sorry, the religious diversity in the region. So as I mentioned, most of the people in this region practice Islam. Uh, the Pathans of Afghanistan are extremely strict. Uh, and this is, um, we talk about the uh, headscarf and the burqa and so forth in Afghanistan. And a lot of people relate that to uh, as being, you know, part of Islam. It's not really part of Islam. Certainly Islam encourages women to be modest in their dress and things like that. But um, uh, the burqa and so forth is really a cultural thing. And it's really a cultural thing of the Pathans in Afghanistan because they're of their very, very strict interpretation of Islam. Uh, nomadic uh, Kazakhs are uh, in Kazakhstan are less uh, strict. Uh, most Muslims in the region are Sunni. Uh, however, as I mentioned, in uh, Afghanistan we have the Hazars uh, of Afghanistan and the Azeris in uh, Azerbaijan practice Shia Islam. Both Russian and Chinese communists tried to suppress Islam and other religions, obviously, as well. Uh, Islamic fundamentalism is really obviously a very potent force in Afghanistan, and particularly when we think of groups like the Taliban and so forth. Uh, we also have Lamas Buddhism in the region, uh, in Mongolia and Tibet. Um, um, hierarchically hierarchically uh, organized, uh, the Dalai Lama is considered to be the reincarnation of Buddha. Um, there's um, uh, ranked below the Dalai Lama is the Panchan uh, Lama. And so then we have different levels in this hierarchy in Buddhism. And um, until the Chinese conquest, Tibet was considered to be a theocracy. It was a religious country based on Buddhist, uh, Buddhism. Lamaism is dedicated to uh, monasticism. So you'll see uh, many, uh, many of the men uh, live in monasteries in, in Buddhism, in uh, Tibet and in Mongolia. And it's actually interesting. I, I, I did my PhD in, uh, in um, Bloomington, Indiana, Indiana University. And it's actually interesting because just outside of Bloomington is the largest Tibetan cultural center in the United States. And it's a very important place uh, for, for Buddhists. And many Buddhists come to that cultural center uh, for uh, for teaching and learning and, and so forth and um, even some of the famous movie stars that are Buddhists uh, visit the uh, visit the uh, the the, uh, uh, the center there and uh, one day I happened to be walking through the student union on my way to my office and all these Buddhist monks were walking through the union at the same time in their saffron robes and things like that. And believe it or not, the person who was leading them was the Dalai Lama, was actually there at the at the Buddhist center and outside of Bloomington, Indiana. And another interesting fact is the Dalai Lama's brother actually owns a restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana, where they sell uh, Tibetan food and things like that. So it's pretty, uh, I found that really interesting, one of those kind of things that, uh, you know, is, uh, well, you don't expect, I guess, is the best way to say. Um, so anyway, uh, because most of the men live in uh, monasteries, uh, there's a shortage of men for marriage. And, and one of the interesting things that's practiced in uh, Tibet is something called polyandry. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard of polygamy, where a man takes more than one wife. But in, in polyandry, it's just the opposite. Women will take more than one husband. 
because there's um, um, there's such a shortage of men, uh, and uh, because the men have dedicated themselves to uh, this mono, mono uh, monasticism. Um, Lama uh, Buddhism in Tibet has been uh, persecuted since 1959. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, when we talk about the geopolitics in the region. Tibetan Buddhism potentially means uh, is potentially a means for political separation. Uh, it's estimated that 6,000 monasteries have been destroyed. Thousands of monks have been killed. Number of monks, um, the number of monks uh, is 5% of its previous level before the Chinese invasion into the region. Um, Buddhism is uh, rising somewhat uh, in Mongolia, but it's not nearly as strong as in Tibet. So when we look at the Central Asian, and here's some images for you. The, this is a monastery, uh, a Lama's Buddhist monastery. You can see beautiful architecture here. And then this is an Islamic mosque uh, in the area. And this actually looks like it's probably in Samarkand because of the architecture and the colors that are being used in that uh, mosque. Uh, so when we think about the Central Asian culture in the, in the uh, global context, Western, Asia, Western Central Asia's uh, closest contact is Russia, obviously. Russian uh, spread throughout the region during the Soviet era, and the Cyrillic alphabet has replaced the, uh, has replaced the Arabic alphabet. Uh, the demise of the Soviet Union uh, has resulted in decline of Russian influence. Eastern Central Asia's closest contact is China. Uh, and of course, U.S. culture is being is starting to be uh, felt in the region because of the U.S. bases in the region, as well as um, and, and and of course the U.S. military in the region as well. Okay, so let's move on and take a look at the geopolitical framework in the region. As I mentioned, you know, very uh, the very early geopolitical framework was the Mongolian Empire, of course. And so now, after the Mongolian Empire, we want to talk about the partitioning, what's sometimes called the partitioning of the steppes, or the partitioning of this region, which really means the division of this region after the Mongolian Empire. Um, as, you know, obviously the Mongolian Empire was a real, really a very powerful empire. So this uh, region was an international power center before 1500. That is before guns, uh, and then guns brought uh, to an end the uh, Mongolian Empire. The Manchu Dynasty of China occupied Mongolia, what is today uh, Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, and part of Kazakhstan by the mid-1700s. Mongolia declared its independence in 1911, but lost some of its land, which is uh, obviously today uh, Inner Mongolia or Ne Mongolia. And the conflict is, obviously, uh, Mongolia would like to have that territory back. But it's, con uh, it's, it's considered part of China. It's considered one of China's uh, autonomous regions. It's uh, part of China and supposedly they have some autonomy over their own affairs, as does supposedly Tibet and so does uh, Xinjiang uh, as well. Uh, but uh, that autonomy is somewhat fleeting, quite frankly. Uh, the Russian Empire began con conquering this uh, in this region, the steppe areas in the 1700s. Uh, they were temporarily stopped at Uzbekistan they finished the conquest in the early 1900s, just before the Soviet era, and then, of course, after the Soviet, the Soviet era, maintained control over this uh, over this region until the breakup of the, of the former Soviet Union. It's obvious that um, uh, a couple things: uh, the Soviets wanted to control 
uh, this area, first of all, to prevent the spread of uh, Islam into uh, into southern parts of Russia, but also it's possible that they wanted to uh, fend off the British as well, because the British had uh, the British Empire extended down into uh, this area, and um, the Russians didn't want it to extend any further north. Um, Soviet, uh, looking at Soviet Central Asia, the Uzbeks and their neighbors tried to regain independence during the Russian Revolution, but they were crushed. Uh, Russian immigrant uh, immigration or the Russification of this area ensued. Uh, Russia's uh, leader or the founder of the Soviet Union or architect of the Soviet Union, Lenin, established the Union Republics, which we had talked about before. Um, you know, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. Uh, Azerbaijan uh, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, the initial boundaries shifted, but finally they, they stabilized. This arrangement inadvertently fostered nationalism that we have talked about because uh, you know, eventually as the Soviet Union began to weaken, these people uh, started to seek auto uh, greater autonomy and then uh, obviously independence. The Chinese uh, political order uh, in this region, uh, after the emergence of, um, commun of a communist country in 1949, uh, and we'll talk about how that occurred when we talk about East Asia and China in particular, China regained its dominance in this region. Promises of regional autonomy won the support from Xinjiang. Tibet did not want to, return, did not want to give up its independence. Uh, the Chinese Institute of Policy, similar to the Russian Union Republics, However, it was not really carried out in practice. Massive immigration of Han Chinese caused additional problems uh, in Tibet and throughout this area, as I mentioned before. Uh, really an effort to Hanize, or the Hanification of this region, if you prefer. So some of the current geopolitical tensions in the region. The former Soviet Union uh, republics made mostly smooth transition after 1991, through, uh, although some ethnic tensions remained. All six Union Republics joined the Commonwealth of Independent States that we had talked about in Russia. Uh, there were some problems in Kazakhstan. It's the largest, most resource-rich uh, part of the, uh, of the region. Many Kazakhs re uh, resent the presence of non-Kazakhs, uh, and particular Russians, in, in their country. This region has nuclear weapons, although many of those, most of those nuclear weapons were returned uh, during the, uh, so, uh, back to Russia. Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the capital, as I mentioned before, was moved northward uh, to uh, uh, Astana to uh, solidify control over the northern part of the, re of the country because this is where you're going to find the largest population of Russians. And so to solidify their control, uh, the Kazakhs moved their capital up into that area. Um, in Tajikistan, there's also been problems since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, war broke out in 1991 between, uh, between Tajiks and ethnic minorities. Um, um, potential for a, there's also a potential for an Islamic war, and Russia remains a military force here. Um, let's see, in Azerbaijan, Armenia was invaded, and Azerbaijan... Uh, Armenia invaded Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is trying to maintain control of its exclave, uh, Natsifan, uh, which is uh, un, uh, in this area right in here, over in here. Okay, so Western Azerbaijan is controlled by 
Armenia. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, what else do I have on this map? I'm sorry I didn't, uh, uh, didn't read the things off the map. Indigenous peoples in the Chinese autonomous region struggle for real autonomy. Yes, we mentioned that. Tensions between Russians and Kazakhs up in this area. We mentioned that. Okay. Um, let's see. Strife in uh, Western China. Local opposition to Chinese uh, rule has grown in the 1990s. China represses, to, uh, repress, represses uh, protests in Tibet. Uh, the Chinese military occupy the region. Uh, this was a valuable region uh, for China uh, because of the mineral deposits, but it's also valuable to China in other ways as well um, because it really acts as a buffer zone uh, between India and Pakistan uh, to uh, the, kind of the main part of China. Uh, India has some um, border disputes with China uh, and if uh, uh, you know it would, if China would get out, give up control of this area it would be very possible that um, India would uh, take over some of the parts of this area and so China is also trying to prevent that. And I think these are things that we don't really Understand certainly we don't want we, we dislike the treatment of the Tibetan people and so forth in this region But we also uh, under, Have to understand that the Chinese the Chinese actually do have some rational reasons for having their military in this area Okay, uh, similar situation with some of the other areas, you know, they're trying to uh, uh, create a buffer zone between the central or main part of China and the Muslim countries as well and so, you know, all these sorts of things play out in the geopolitics of the region that we really need to kind of understand. Uh, the development of an, a Uyghur separatist movement in, uh, we, uh, up in this area has also developed. Um, and China believes that all of its Central Asian lands are in, integral to its national territory. Um, and so, as I said, uh, they act as buffer zones, uh, not only... Uh, for uh, Islam moving into the area, but also for other countries that have some uh, territorial claims in, in what is, you know, the greater China today. Well, let's talk a bit about the war in Afghanistan, which is a really depressing situation, of course. Uh, it began in 1978 when the Soviet-supported military coup seized power. Uh, it, they obviously began to suppress religion. This led to a rebellion. The Soviet Union set in troop, sent in troops in 1979 to support the communist government. Pakistan and the United States uh, supported the Afghan forces that were fighting against the, um, against the Soviet Union. And this really contributed uh, to the creation of the Taliban uh, in Pakistan. So we were actually supporting um, what we consider today to be a terrorist organization and that essentially turned around and then allegedly um, attacked the United States uh, in, uh, uh, at, on 9-11 in 2001. Uh, eventually, the USS, uh, uh, the Soviet Union was defeated and its troops withdrew in 1989. And of course, after the Soviets uh, withdrew, there was a power struggle in the country between the variety of different warlords and so forth. And in um, 1995 to 1996, a new power, the Taliban, took control. And, and so we were supporting uh, al the Al-Qaeda fighters against uh, the Soviet Union, supplying them with weapons and so forth, and 
we were supplying them with uh, intelligence, uh, military intelligence, and so forth as to the location of Soviet troops. And I said, and you know, the Al Qaeda leadership was Osama bin Laden, who we alleged uh, then eventually attacked the United States. And then, as I said, the Taliban came to power in 1990, somewhere around 1995-96, and took control. Uh, the Taliban was founded by young Muslim religious students. Many of them were Pathans. Uh, they established a strict Islamic law in the region, and they were supported by the Pakistan Pathans. Okay, and we saw the uh, the Pashtun language and so forth. Other ethnic groups uh, opposed the Taliban. Uh, but because of the support that they had um, from Pakistan, they were unable to uh, dislodge them. So, the global dimensions of Central Asian tension. What will happen in Afghanistan? Well, your guess is as good as mine, but I suspect if the United States really does withdraw its troops in uh, 19 or in 2000, uh, in 2014, like we claim we will, then uh, we'll probably see a power vacuum once again develop in this area. Uh, but it's hard to say. So uh, as I keep mentioning, this region has, uh, has emerged as a key arena, obviously with the key political, uh, geopolitical tensions. Um, China, Russia, Pakistan, India, Iran, Turkey, and the U.S. are all vying for influence in the region. Will there be a continuing role of the U.S.? The U.S. has established a military presence after 2001 in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. Mongolia is seeking closer ties with the U.S. as well to counter the influence of Chinese or Russia. So you can see it's going to be very interesting what occurs in this area. Um, uh, relationships, uh, relations with China and Russia. Russia continues to regard the former, its former Soviet republics as lying with this, within its sphere of influence in the region. Uh, it has retained military bases, as I mentioned, in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Economics and infrastructure also bind the region uh, to, to Russia. In the 21st century, as the, we've seen the establishment of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, SCO, or sometimes also referred to the Shanghai Six. I think we used to also call it the Shanghai Gang of Six, if I remember correctly. Uh, and this is composed of, the chi of China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. And they seek cooperation on security issue, and the aims is... The aims are to enhance trade and serves as a counterbalance uh, to the United States. And really, that's the the whole goal here is to counterbalance the influence of the United that the United States is trying to uh, achieve in this area. Well, how about some of the other countries that surround this region? How about the roles of Iran, Pakistan, and Turkey? Iran is a major trading partner with the region and offers good potential route to the ocean to the sea especially for oil coming out of the Caspian Basin. Um, it also has a strong cultural link within the region based on language. Pakistan seeks to gain influence, hoping oil pipelines will carry oil and natural gas to its deep water port at Gwandar. Turkey's connections are also cultural. Economic relations may strengthen its Central Asia oriented Orients to Western economies. And also, we talked a little bit about um, the language uh, in this area as well. 
being related to uh, the Altaic languages or Turkish also. So let's move on. Uh, some of these things we've already talked about. There's also contested space. Um, they have a lot. Uh, they show that they're going to draw a line around the Farragona Valley, but you can see this is actually the Farragona Valley in the and right in here, and uh, it actually uh, in, in it's uh, the Farragona Valley, which is uh, uh, a good uh, for agriculture, actually is part of three different countries or three uh, different countries claim uh, parts of the Farragona Valley. Uh, so first of all, uh, we have Tajikistan, as you can see, extends up into the Farragana Valley. And then, of course, we have Kazakhstan. But the main country uh, that controls much of the Farragana Valley is Uzbekistan. And so there's po uh, political issues here, especially as waters are dammed and, and rivers are dammed and so forth, that may influence the availability of water for the valley. Uh, we've talked about a lot of these current tensions, so I'm not going to speak about them again. We talked about Tibet. We talked about independence in the former Soviet countries. We talked about West, Western China, and we also talked about Afghanistan. And so you can see when uh, uh, the Soviets, uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, some of the uh, iconic uh, statuary was uh, toppled and destroyed. Uh, so we have a toppled uh, statue of Lenin, who was the architect of the Soviet Union. Uh, in Xinjiang, uh, we have the Chinese security responding to ethnic rioting there uh, between uh, the uh, Xinjiang people, the Muslim people, and the Han Chinese. Uh, we have a uh, foreign military base in Kyrgyzstan, if you recall. I mentioned that. And this is uh, the Russian military base there. I believe this is the Russian military base. It looks like it's Russian in on the uh, written on the uh, on the truck here. And then we have, of course, U.S. troops in Afghanistan that uh, uh, create uh, problems as well. So let's move along and take a look at the economic geography of the region, which, uh, quite frankly, is um, not that great. Uh, if, you, if you want to be honest about it. So you can see the GNI per capita, and I'm not quite sure how we even measure this in, in Afghanistan, uh, but you can see uh, GNI per capitas are relatively low. The richest country in the region is Kazakhstan, as you can see, uh, based on GNI per capita. Uh, annual growth rate, I'm not really sure how we measure this. Azerbaijan has obviously grown because of the oil industry. Kazakhstan also has uh, oil and also has rich farmlands. Uh, Turkmenistan, you have to remember, a lot of these uh, figures, once again, are off a very, very small base. Um, so, you know, when we see 14.5% uh, growth, you have to remember in real dollars, that's probably not that great uh, because of the very low base that we're talking about. Uh, human Development in Index, again, I don't know how we measure this uh, for Afghanistan. Quite frankly, I don't know how we measure anything for Afghanistan. But you can see it, it's extraordinarily low, 0.35 for Afghanistan. So that is that is absolutely horrible. Some of the former Soviet countries, uh, you know, while they're not tremendous, they're not too bad, uh, mainly because during the Soviet period, people had access to health care and education. And so some of that is carrying on into their uh, figures today, as you can see. Uh, poverty levels uh, in many of these areas are pretty uh, substantial. Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, for example, Kyrgyzstan. And I wanted to point out the life expectancy. 
in Afghanistan, a, a horrible 44 years of age, probably the lowest life expectancy on the globe. Um, actually, I'm fairly certain it has the lowest life expectancy of any place on the globe. And of course, a lot of that is due to the warfare that has been going on there for you know, up more than 30 years uh, since the Russian invasion and now the U.S. invasion of the country. Because not only are people killed in the, you know, from the fighting, but it totally disrupts the agricultural systems, which is how most of the people in this region um, make their living. Look at the under five mortality for Afghanistan. It was 260 in 1990, and we see almost no improvement uh, through 2008. So, you know, really, really horrible. And that also helps us to understand why people have so many children in the, in the region, because so many of the children die at a young age. And, of course, like many other parts of the world, um, Parents need their children to live to adulthood to help support them in their old age when they can no longer support themselves. Uh, some of these places are improving. Uh, Azerbaijan looks like it has showed a pretty nice improvement in its uh, under five uh, mortality rates. Um, and most of the countries look like they're improving uh, fairly well. What's well, still pretty substantial uh, rates are uh, not uh, real good. Not real good. And you can see the gen, uh, gender equity. We would expect them to be high in the former Soviet uh, countries of this region, mainly because uh, uh, gender equity was always uh, uh, promoted in the former Soviet Union and, and uh, the surrounding republics. But if you look at Afghanistan, it's a pretty dismal uh, at 58. So uh, this is uh, the Shanghai Six that we had talked about earlier, uh, the China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. These are the leaders of the countries, as you can see, here's Putin um, and some of the other leaders of the various uh, countries. So let's talk a little bit about the economies of this region. Um, um, one of the poorest regions of the world, obviously, we saw with the GNI per capita. Some countries have experienced relatively high levels of health and education, which, as I mentioned before, is the legacy of the communist uh, uh, era. The region is plagued by inefficient economic systems. The region is expanding economically because of natural resources, particularly oil and natural gas. And this is uh, what you would see in Azerbaijan, the oil and natural gas fields in that area. And you can understand why the Caspian Sea is so polluted, right, uh, by looking at this and at, at these images. So looking at the uh, post-communist economies, um, we can see that economic development in Central Asia has increased, uh, particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, has increased the disparity between the rich and the poor. Um, there's a range of economic levels. Kazakhstan is the most developed, based mostly on the world's largest underutilized deposits of oil and natural gas, as I mentioned. Uh, the, the Tengiz and the uh, Kashakhan fields in, northe in the northeastern Caspian Basin. Uzbekistan has the second largest economy, has retained elements of, a, of the uh, Soviet command economy. It's the world's uh, second largest exporter of cotton. And remember, they, they dammed up the Sirdaria and the Amudaria rivers. Uh, and they, too, have re retained some elements of the command economy. Um, 
uh, has significant gold and natural gas deposits, but environmental degradation threatens the cotton production. And that's what I meant by the uh, salinization. The soil is becoming uh, overutilized. Both Kurdistan and Tur Turkmenistan depend on agriculture for their economies. Azerbaijan is receiving international investment, but, oil, but the oil fuel economy remains relatively poor. Tajikistan is the poorest and least developed country in the, in the region. Mongolia has made major mining investments by Chinese and Western firms and has resulted in rapid economic expansion. Uh, in Western China, Tibet remains burdened by poverty, though China has invested in infrastructure and tourism is increasing in Xinjiang has economic potential because uh, and tourism is in, uh, has been increasing in Tibet. Xinjiang has um, economic potential because of its mineral wealth. Well, Afghanistan, as you might imagine, is experiencing economic misery. It's clearly Central Asia's poorest country. It's been plagued by war for, and strife for at least 30 years, if not longer. It has significant legal exports. Uh, the, the only significant legal exports, and quite frankly, they aren't too great, would be animal products, hand-woven carpets, some fruits, nuts, gemstones. The major economic activity is tied to the production of illegal drugs for the global market. So um, poppies are grown here, and uh, the poppy is turned into opium, and then uh, the opium uh, is processed further into heroin. And that's a huge, huge industry in Afghanistan. I can't even tell you how huge. And you would think, you would think, that uh, with U.S. troops there, that the uh, opium uh, and the poppy growing would uh, diminish or you know be tamped down somewhat or or uh, be eliminated, quite frankly, because of the problems that we have in this country with uh, drug addiction. But actually, the opposite hasn't has occurred. Uh, the Taliban actually, when they were in power in the late 1990s and the early 2000s actually were the ones who uh, 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 reduced, were able to reduce the amount of poppies uh, that were grown in the country and reduce the opium production and then the heroin production. And since the U.S. invasion, that has rebounded. It's actually higher than it's ever been uh, in the country, in the entire country's history, as, as far as I, back as I can go in my research of the, of the area. So um, that's a little bit about the Central Asian uh, Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, you know, if we look at the global context of the economy in this region, Afghanistan tied because of drug trade in the former Soviet area. Country, countries are connected mostly through Russia. Uh, the United States and Western countries and India are attracted to natural resources throughout the area. When we look at the social development uh, in the region, um, we can say that uh, uh, conditions vary widely across the entire region. Afghanistan obviously ranks at the bottom of every single measure, and we saw that with the Human Development Index uh, that we looked at in the uh, table a few slides ago. Social conditions and status of women in Afghanistan, um, as I mentioned, life expectancy of 44 is, is, is the lowest on the globe. Infant, more, infant and child mortality um, is probably... I, fairly certain it's the highest in the world. There might be some places in sub-Saharan Africa that might uh, challenge Afghanistan, but it, uh, 
They're uh, very close to having the highest infant mortality rates in the world. Illiteracy is commonplace, and especially among women. Um, women lead uh, highly constrained lives, as, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. Restrictions are worse, were worse under the conservative Taliban rule. And, you know, one of the things that we said we were going to do was we were going to free up women uh, in Afghanistan. And quite frankly, that really hasn't uh, occurred. Women still, in most parts, probably outside of Kabul, the capital, outside of uh, the, Kabul, the capital, most women are still required to uh, wear the burqa. Most women still do not have access to education and health care. And, uh, uh, well, actually, most people in Afghanistan have access to health care. Uh, some of the um, social conditions in the former Soviet republics, the position of women has declined in many areas. Uh, women trafficked into prostitution, especially from Uzbekistan to Tajikistan. Um, and many of these women end up in, uh, uh, in places like Thailand and things like that, but also up into uh, Moscow and some of the larger cities in Russia. Overall, social welfare is better in the former Soviet republics, uh, and that's a, a legacy of the former Soviet Union having control over uh, uh, some of this region, or most of this region. But health and educational facilities have declined with economic and political um, turmoil. And in, uh, obviously in Western China, uh, the indigenous people uh, fare less well than, uh, than the Chinese people do. So uh, that kind of, let's take a look at some of these uh, images. I'm sorry I jumped ahead there. So Chinese business in Tibet, as you can see. So a Tibetan person looking in the in the window here at the Tibetan hair or the Chinese hairstyles, and the uh, Mongolia with its uh, sheep industry uh, uh, and cashmere, and then the global linkages, as you can see here. Percentage of population used in the internet is fairly low. Let's see. Uh, Afghanistan is very low, as you can see, and uh, direct investment in some of the countries. You can see uh, there's no data for lots of these areas, okay, but in Mongolia, um, three to six, what is that, three, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 1.5 to 3 billion, uh, not a tremendous amount of money. You can see Kazakhstan has over 40 billion, probably mostly for the oil. Six to ten billion in Azerbaijan, once again, probably mostly for the oil. And of course, Turkmenistan also has access to some of this Caspian Basin oil, so they're probably also receiving uh, some uh, funding as well. Uh, so here's Afghan women in public, as you can see, uh, wearing the burqa. And then uh, you can see it appears in Mongolia that women fare. Uh, much better. We have a female lab technician in Mongolia. Oh, I'm sorry. Did not want to do that. Um, did not want to do that. So uh, let's uh, summarize what we've uh, found out here about uh, Central Asia. Central Asia, as I mentioned, has reappeared on the map. Environmental problems are brought to the region. Uh, environmental problems brought to brought the region to the world's attention. But not only that. Uh, also, geopolitical tensions in the region have uh, brought uh, the world's attention and also the availability of natural resources. 
Movements of people within the region have attracted global attention, especially in Tibet, as Han Chinese move in, uh, and also the uh, refugees from Afghanistan moving out, and other peoples moving back to the Soviet Union, the Russians moving back to the Soviet Union. Religious tension is a major cultural issue in the region. Radic radical Islamic fundamentalism is a potent force. While China maintains a firm grip on Tibet and Xinjiang, the rest of the region is a, key, is a key area of geopolitical competition, as we saw um, with the uh, Shanghai Six, the United States, and other Western countries. Uh, the economies of the region are opening to global connections, but most still confront huge economic difficulties, and they will continue for several generations into the future, I suspect. So that brings us to the end of Central Asia, a particularly fascinating region, at least in my opinion, and I hope you find it fascinating as well. So when we come back for the next set of lectures, we'll be focusing on East Asia.